And it is before God's throne in heaven. We have a great high priest whose name is love. Jesus Christ is the one who came to this earth to make a way for all of us to spend eternity with him and the Father in heaven. And it's amazing to me to think about the concept of God Almighty leaving the eternal throne to occupy human flesh and live amongst us. We are amazed by that. Just think of how Jesus would have felt coming to this earth. Think of everything that he would have gone through as he interacted with people now face to face and in the flesh. In the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming and declaring the gospel message. That word gospel simply means good news. And what he does is preaches over and over again that God's time is now. That the time is fulfilled. That God's kingdom is at hand. Or really that his reign is imminent. And he tells people to repent or to turn around from living their lives in their own sinfulness and selfishness and to believe in this gospel. That is to trust in, to have faith in this good news that he has come to deliver men and women from their own wicked ways. It's amazing to think about. In Mark chapter 1, we see three events to introduce Jesus as the Messiah. You talked about these in your Sunday school lesson last week, if you were there. If you didn't, let me recap them for you. The first event that takes place in the Gospel of Mark is the baptism of Jesus. Jesus comes to his cousin, John the Immerser, and he says, John, I need to be baptized by you. After just a little bit of debate, John says, okay, Jesus, you're the Lord, I'll, I'll do it. And Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. But something interesting happened when Jesus was baptized. The heavens split apart. They opened up. And the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and rested upon Jesus. And the voice of the Father declared, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This was Jesus' inauguration. It was his anointing, his christening as the Messiah. He was the anointed one of God. The second thing that happened to Jesus after he was baptized is that he was led by the Holy Spirit who had anointed him into the wilderness where he was tempted, Mark shows us, for 40 days by Satan. And all the while he overcomes this temptation by trusting in the Lord, depending upon his word and submitting to his Father's will. And then after he undergoes temptation... Jesus calls some followers. We use the fancy spiritual word disciple. And he pulls these guys from an interesting place in society. The common man. Fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The first four that are mentioned there in Mark is leaving their nets immediately. Dropping everything and following Jesus. Jesus was a great teacher, and these people knew he was worth following, so they left everything to follow him. And then after these events occur, at 
the beginning of Mark chapter 1, we see three miracles that take place. These introduce Jesus' ministry. The first miracle that occurs is when a demon-possessed man comes up to Jesus as he's teaching in the synagogue, and Jesus casts out the demon. The man is then made whole. The people continue to listen to him teach, and they realize they've never heard anything like this before. Nor have they seen anything like this before. He teaches as one who has authority, and he has power even over the forces of evil. So word begins to spread and people begin to come to Jesus and flock to him. And soon he's just surrounded by a throng of people. And then two other miracles occur. In verses 29 through 34 we read the story about Peter or Simon's mother-in-law being healed of a fever. Again, same thing happens. People hear of this news and... They bring others to Jesus who are in need of healing, and soon there's so great a crowd around Jesus that he can hardly move. And then the third miracle that occurs towards the end of the gospel, the end of chapter 1 of Mark, is found in verses 40 through 45, when Jesus heals a leprous man. A guy comes up to him who has some form of a skin disease. They were told under Old Testament law to pronounce themselves unclean so that no one else contracted the illness. And so as this man's coming up to Jesus, probably through through the crowd that's around, saying, I'm unclean, I'm a leper, he comes to Jesus and he says, I know you can heal me if you want to, will you do it? And Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed. And Jesus tells this leprous man, don't go around and sharing this with everybody, please. A leprous man disobeys the Lord. And he goes around and tells everybody what Jesus has done for him. And soon there's so great a crowd around Jesus that he can hardly move. Now these miracles reveal to us something about the identity of Jesus. And some characteristics of him. Namely, these miracles reveal his power. That he is able to do anything and everything. These miracles also reveal his compassion. That is, at the very heart of his heart is a heart for people. He loves them. He cares for them. He wants to minister to them. They also reveal that he is the Messiah. As Mark introduced him to be the anointed one of God with those three events, his baptism and the anointing of the Spirit, his resisting all of temptations of Satan and his power to overcome evil, and then the calling of his disciples, such a great personality and such great charisma and really such great divine authority had Jesus that these men were willing to leave everything immediately and follow him. These miracles continue to reveal his identity as the Messiah. A Hebrew word that means anointed. Christ, the Greek word that means anointed. Jesus is the anointed, the chosen one of God. And these miracles also reveal his inauguration. That the kingdom of God had come to earth. But there's something interesting that happens in the midst of these three miracle accounts. 
And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. In verses 35 through 39, Jesus isn't surrounded by a group of people. He's off by himself praying to his Father who sent him to this earth to redeem people from their sins. And so just in order to kind of set the context and help you realize everything that's transpiring, we're going to be begin reading in Mark chapter 1, verse 29. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. I'm going to preach to you this message on healing and salvation. And immediately, after they came out of the synagogue, that's where Jesus had healed the man who was demon-possessed, they came into the house of Simon, also known as Peter, and Andrew, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her and she waited on them or served them. Now think about this for a moment. Let's just say that you go to your mother-in-law's house and you're expecting to eat something. You've had a long day out working. And you get there and she's in bed. She's sick. Maybe she's got the flu. That's been going around here, right? I thought this message would tie in nice. Healing and salvation with the flu epidemic in Walnut Ridge and Hoxie. So he goes to this house and she's not around. In fact we kind of seem to understand that she'd been sick. This wasn't anything that caught Simon and Andrew off guard. James and John are there too. They probably had some interactions with each other even before they followed Jesus being in the fishing business. And Jesus says, guys, what's going on? As they're kind of whispering back and forth to each other. Well, Jesus... Mom, my mother-in-law, she's, she's sick back there in that back room. She's had a fever for a few days now. I don't really know what to do. Um, but Jesus, <laughs> since you're here, you know, we, we just saw you cast a demon out from this guy in the synagogue. Obviously, you can do all things. Would you mind to pray with her? And so Jesus goes back to the bedroom, takes her hand, lifts her up out of bed. And would you know, I mean, this, this is a miracle in and of itself that Jesus heals this woman. The fever leaves her immediately. She gets up and then she cooks. Mother-in-law cooks for her son-in-law. I tell you, this is a miracle. No. It was wonderful in that house that day. I'm sure. I guarantee it. Because all of a sudden, this woman who went from being unable to do anything was now able to serve and minister to her family. And I'm sure that out of the goodness and kindness of her heart, she also wanted to prepare a meal for the man that had healed her of the disease she was facing. But that's not where it stopped. And wouldn't you know, Jesus just wanted to have a nice sit-down meal with his four buddies and their family. But it says in verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill 
and all those who were demon-possessed. Now, keep in mind what's going on here. Jesus had been in the synagogue teaching, we know from earlier in Mark chapter 1. The Jews gathered in their synagogues on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. This was their day of worship, the Sabbath day. And so as they gathered to worship in the synagogue, they would have gone back to their homes. Now, it was also considered a sin for Jewish people under Old Testament law to travel more than necessary on the Sabbath day. They were allowed to walk to synagogue and back home because they were told to worship as well as rest on the Sabbath. But could you imagine all of the other conversations going on at all of the other dinner tables around this same evening? I mean, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, but everybody else has gone home and talked to their mother-in-laws and their aunts and their uncles and their second cousins once removed and then married again, you know, however. And they say, hey... You've got to come see this Jesus. You remember grandma so-and-so that's sick? She needs to come too. We think we found a solution. Hey, little Johnny, the, the guy that's been sick ever since he was born, hey, bring him over too. Hey, so-and-so's demon-possessed down the street. Let's bring them to Jesus and see what he can do about that. And here's why they start coming after the sundown. Jewish time starts not when the sun comes up in the morning or not at midnight like we do in our culture, but when the sun goes down. So when the sun goes down on Saturday, it's Sunday. And people are bringing others to Jesus. Notice Mark does this all throughout his gospel. They begin bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon possessed. Just pulling them out from everywhere they can and bringing them to Jesus. And it says in verse 33, the whole city had gathered at the door. I was reading a commentary from James Brooks this week, and he talked about how Mark uses hyperbole all throughout his gospel. He, he kind of does. He's kind of like a good old boy that likes to tell fishing stories. But at the same time, Mark doesn't over-exaggerate the fame and popularity that Jesus is gaining by doing these miracles and casting out demons. I mean, this is not a huge city of Jerusalem that Jesus is in at this point in time. So the whole city, maybe there's a few people still at home. But man, there's so many people gathered at Peter's mother-in-law's door. She's kind of going, <laughs> I wish I was sick back in bed so I don't have to deal with all these people. But Jesus didn't say that and he didn't wish that. In fact, verse 34 says, He healed many who were ill with various diseases. And he cast out many demons. And Mark adds this note, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And then here in verse 35, we, we find something interesting that occurs. And then early in the morning, I mean, who knows how much sleep Jesus actually got to have that night, right? As they're bringing people to him. But early in the morning, while it was still dark, before the sun had come up, Jesus got up and left the house. And he went away to a secluded place and he was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so, so that I can preach there also. For that is what I came for. 
And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him, said, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Now, with these lepers, they weren't really supposed to be around everybody else. They were viewed as outcasts, socially, physically. They were supposed to stay away from people. Leprosy was oftentimes viewed as a judgment of God upon someone. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see on more than one occasion, God doling out judgment by giving leprosy to someone who's been disobedient to him. Happens with Miriam, Moses' sister, when she speaks against God's chosen leader of the nation. It happens with a king when he goes into the tabernacle, or sorry, the temple there in the Old Testament, and instead of acting as a king, he decides to take priestly duties upon himself. And king Uzziah is struck with leprosy and has to flee. This leper comes to Jesus, probably hearing everything that had transpired the day before, and Maybe he knew that he wasn't going to be able to go to the house where Jesus was that night because it would have been taboo. And so he's searching for Jesus and finally he just busts his way through the crowd. He falls on his knees as a symbol of humility and respect for Jesus. And he just, he knows what Jesus can do for him. He doesn't know if Jesus will and so he's just kind of like, if you will... You can make me clean. Almost like demanding because he wants to be clean, but humbly asking because he doesn't want to sound mean or harsh or demanding towards Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't heal him and then touch him. He touches him and then heals him. I mean, this is amazing to me. You think about this. Some of you are scared to shake people's hands who had the flu three weeks ago because you might get it. This guy is still a leper. Jesus reaches out his hand and says, be clean, brother. This, that is amazing to me. He wasn't scared of the sin that was around him. He wasn't scared of the disease that was around him. He came to this earth to heal and to save. He says, I'm willing to be cleansed. And it says in verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. He said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. In Leviticus 14, we have all the uh, different kinds of laws about lepers. When one of them was pronounced clean, they were supposed to go to the priest who had the authority from God to say, yes, this person is no longer stricken with the disease. They're clean, they can rejoin society and do whatever else they need to and, and want to do. They were to offer up a sacrifice... And then they could go back home. But Jesus says, you go do all that, but don't tell people what I've done for you by healing you of this leprosy. It's interesting. Jesus does this several times all throughout the book of Mark. In fact, theologians have come to label it the Markan secret or the Messianic secret. Why would Jesus tell people, I've come so that you can repent and believe in the good news. Don't tell anybody I healed you. Don't tell anybody I casted out those demons. 
don't tell anybody I raised you up out of bed when you were sick with a fever. Don't tell anybody that I cleansed you from leprosy. Why would Jesus shut the mouths of those demons who knew who he was as he was casting them out? And they're attributing to him titles. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I think we find some of the answer in verse 45. That man, the leper who had been cleansed, went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. What would that be like for a person to be so popular that while they're coming around the bend after they go through the stoplight there and they're coming up the old Highway 91, that when that old wooden sign that was there that used to say, Welcome to Walnut Ridge and Hoxie, that there are so many people right there waiting at that curve in the road that you couldn't even get into town. This is the idea Mark's presenting. Jesus couldn't publicly enter a city without a bunch of hoopla everywhere. So Jesus stayed in unpopulated areas, but they were still coming to him from everywhere, from all over the place. Here's what I think was going on. Jesus had come to seek and to save that which was lost. But the people who were lost didn't realize exactly how lost they were. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't care about everything that they were facing and all the difficulties that they were going through. It was that he had come to do far more than they expected or wanted him to do. I mean... Jesus can heal physical diseases, but he wants to give you eternal salvation. That's why he came. And I think that's why Jesus retreated in verse 35. Why he went off by himself while it was still dark early in the morning to a secluded place to pray to his father. We don't know what all he prayed, but I imagine... That Jesus probably told his father in heaven, God, I'm a little tired. I taught all day. I came home and helped this family. And after I was done eating dinner, I didn't get to go to bed. Everybody else started coming into the house. God, there are people coming from all over the place. But they're not coming to hear me preach, to hear me tell them to repent and turn around. To hear me to tell them to believe in the good news. They're coming so that I can cleanse them from leprosy and get rid of their fevers and cast out demons and help them walk and help them see. God, I came down here to save these people. I don't know if these people really want to be saved. They want to be touched. But Lord, they want you to touch them the way that they want you to touch them. In fact, here's something interesting that we see in all three of these miracle accounts in Mark chapter 1. We don't see, and these people might have done this, but I think Mark's trying to make the point. We don't see these three individuals coming to faith in Jesus and getting saved when they're healed. Or did I miss something? You guys see that there? We don't see that. In fact, what we see is them going and telling other people not how great Jesus is to be able to save them from their sins, but how amazing a miracle worker Jesus is to be able to do this and that for them. I think that Jesus 
might have gotten a little frustrated. Jesus, I came to save these people from eternity in hell, but God, they're more worried about being able to cook the next day. Father, you sent me down here to rescue these people from sins, but it seems like the only thing they care about is getting a demon cast out of their son so that he can live a happy life for the next 40 years before he dies. God, don't they realize that even if he lives for 40 years, he's still got eternity to think about? When Simon, Peter, and it says his companions search for Jesus, they're looking for him. I mean, I imagine they had a long night too at the house with everybody coming and going. And they probably wanted to sleep in a little bit. But remember, Jesus had called Peter and these other guys to follow him. Either Jesus wasn't a good leader or these guys weren't good followers because when Jesus got up early in the morning to pray, they were still snoozing. And so when Simon finally finds him, he says, everybody's looking for you. And this verb in verse 36 means to search is never used in a positive light in all of Mark's writing. When they're searching for Jesus, it means they're hunting for him. Kind of like when you're playing hide-and-go-seek with your kids and your kids have hidden way too long and it's time to go to the store and you're like, hey, come on. This is Simon Peter. Jesus, come on. And they found him. And you notice, Simon's pretty short. Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Where have you been? Could you imagine saying that to Jesus? This is what Peter does. Where are you? What's going on? Why are you not around when we need you? You not realize that there's other people out here that need healing, Jesus? You not realize that there's other people out here who are broken and need some help? We're having to deal with them all too. Have you not thought about us at all? We're having knocks on the door as soon as the sun comes up in the morning. Mother-in-law was just sick yesterday. You remember you healed her. She's got to deal with all those people. Jesus, where are you at? And Jesus looked at Simon and he says something to him that's so bizarre. Hey, let's go somewhere else. Let's go to the towns nearby so that I can preach there also. That's what I came for. I don't know if anybody had ever talked to Jesus about like marketing strategies and popularity and sales pitches and good business strategy. But my thought is, if you've got a ton of people who are flocking to hear you and to see you, spend time with those people. After all, who wouldn't do that in our day and time, right? I mean, you measure success by how many people like you on Facebook. Or follow you on Twitter. How many people buy your product? How many engagements you get through social media? Jesus was popular and famous at this point in that little part of the world. Why would he leave? Because he hadn't come to be popular and famous. 
Why did Jesus say he came? To attract as many people to his circus freak sideshows that he could so that people could eat their popcorn and peanuts and see so-and-so from down the street who had never been able to walk before all of a sudden use his legs. Yay! Way to go, Jesus. You got a gold star. No. He came to preach the gospel message. That's why he went to their synagogues throughout all Galilee preaching and casting out demons. Understand, Jesus was not opposed to healing diseases. He wasn't against casting out demons. But Jesus came to do more than just put a band-aid on people's problems. He came to save them from the sin that caused all these things in the first place. I mean, stop and think about this, if you will. I know this might sound harsh to some of you. But do we not do this in our day and time with Jesus? Jesus, look, I've, I've served you since I was 10 years old. I came to know you as Savior and Lord of my life at Vacation Bible School. But Jesus, I don't know where you've been the last two and a half years while my mom's been battling cancer. I don't know what you're thinking up there, but I could really use some help down here. Do we not do this when we say, God, I have followed you for all of my life. And now I feel absolutely and utterly alone. God, I know life expectancy is, what is it, 72, something like that. I told you some of you aren't going to like this, I'm going to say it anyways. Life expectancy 72, what am I going to do with the last six and a half years of my life? Don't you care about me anymore? Where are my friends? Why can't everything be about me? Jesus came to do far more than make you happy or make your life easier or make you feel more comfortable. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that means he'll deal with the hard stuff of life. Look, he knows when people have cancer. He knows when people are lonely. He knows when people are hurting and when people are broken. But he also knows this. He can patch up your life and make it look all rosy and nice on the outside and make you live a successful American happy dream while you're here on this earth. But if you haven't really dealt with the real problem and that's the sin in your own heart and your own life, then none of that's ultimately going to make a difference. Jesus can heal physical diseases, but he wants to give you eternal salvation. That's why he came. And this is why Jesus did everything that he did. I mean, think about it. When he cast out a demon, he tried to preach to those people about how he could set them free from evil. When he healed someone who was sick with a fever, he helped to remind them that he was the very one who created them inside and out, knew everything about their physical body and also their spiritual soul. That he couldn't just bring healing to them physically, he could also bring healing to them where it would really make a difference, deep down inside. Because one day, every single one of these people that Jesus cured, healed, or cleansed would all, day, would all one day die. Do you realize that? One day, all of us, no matter who we are, will face death. 
what do you want when that time comes? Jesus, you gave me enough money to make me happy while I was here. Thanks. Jesus, you kept me from getting the flu in January of 2019, in February, March of 2019, when it was spreading all over the place. Help me live a couple of healthy, happy months. Thanks. Or when you get to that point, you want to be able to say, Lord, you've been good to me. Yeah, I've dealt with some bad stuff in my life. There's been some challenges and trials and struggles and difficulties. But Lord, I know that eternity awaits. And God, I haven't just lived my life here on this earth wanting you to bless me here and now. I lived my life for you and wanting to make a difference for eternity. You see, we get it backwards. A lot of times we think it's about how good or how great things can be here and now. And some of that's necessary. I think Jesus wanted a lot of people to hear his message. But he did. I, I want a lot of people to come to church here to hear the message of Jesus. But listen, for Jesus, it was never about how many people he could slap on the forehead and say, you're healed in my name, get out of here. It was always about how many people he could look at face to face, eye to eye, and say, I love you. I want you to turn away from your sins and trust me. Will you do it? It's never about how many people we can get in these pews on a Sunday morning. It's about how many people that we can look at, whether it's through personal evangelism that you do one-on-one -on -one with others, or whether it's through me preaching to you or Coy sharing this message with the youth or Bryson with children, or you as a Sunday school teacher sharing that with your class. It's about how many people we can say Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. If you will give your life to him, he will give you new and eternal life. That's what it's about. And listen, to some degree, we've got to have people come. We've got to do things like youth lock-ins or Koi does. I don't have to stay up all night. But listen. It's not about having 300 teenagers come into this building for a youth lock-in and having some fun at hijinks. Do you guys get that? I want you to get that. And we're gonna, you're going to do that. It's going to be tons of fun for everybody that stays up late. Um, but here's what it's about. It's about the opportunity for 300-something teenagers to hear that there's a God in heaven who loves them so much that he sent his one and only son to die for them. And that they can experience the love of a heavenly father. A love unlike any other love that they've ever known on this earth. And that if they come to know that love, they can spend eternity enjoying that love. And they can spend the rest of their lives here on earth sharing that love with other people. That's what it's about. Healing and salvation are found in Jesus Christ. The ultimate reason he came is to bring salvation for eternity to people who are lost and destined for hell without Him. So let me ask you this question. If you are following Jesus Christ, what are you doing to live with that same mission? Remember, disciple means follower. Follower. 
your memory verse from Sunday school this last week was Mark chapter 1, verse 17, when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The Christian Standard Bible says, I will make you fish for people. In other words, when you follow Jesus, you fish for people. That's not an option. That's obedience. If you follow Jesus, you make other disciples. Is that what your life is all about? Or is it about something far less? Is it about you being happy? Is it about you being healthy? Is it about you having money? Is it about you feeling comfortable? Is it about making life easy? Is it about making life better? Or is it about bringing eternal salvation to a lost world that needs it? It made Jesus do something weird. It made him say, nah, these people don't want the message. I've shared it with them. They want the benefits. They want the extras. I want to go to people that need to hear. I want to go to people people that are going to believe. I want to go to people that need salvation and are going to experience it. How are we as a church living and operating in that way? Or are we operating on something far less valuable? How well known we are in the community. How many people come? How many programs, activities, ministries we have going on? Or how many people we're engaging to point towards eternal life in Christ? Because when you live with that end in view, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and to provide eternal salvation, here's what I think happens. I think that all of a sudden, that $5 that you were going to use this week to go and get you a coffee at the dark side, you say, you know what, I'm going to grab that offering envelope off of the pew, and instead of making myself feel happy by taking a time out this week and going and getting a coffee and me sitting in solitude for 10 minutes, I'm going to take 10 minutes to pray for North American missionaries and I'm going to put this $5 in that offering envelope and stick it in the plate next Sunday morning so that somebody somewhere in our country who's lost can hear about Jesus and get saved. Here's what I think happens. I think all of a sudden, somebody who was going to sit at home on a Friday night and review Cardinal Spring training news and just have a good time sitting on their couch after a long week at work says, you know what? I'm going to put down the smartphone and not check my MLB app. And instead, I'm going to go up to the church about 6 o'clock on Friday night and make sure Coley doesn't need any more help getting everything ready. Because I know he's got a lot of teenagers coming, and that many of them are going to be lost and need to hear about Jesus. And so instead of taking my Friday night to spend on myself, I'm going to use my Friday night to honor and glorify the Lord and to help Coy so that he can present the gospel message to all these teenagers that come. So that one of them, even if it's just one of them, will give their life to Christ and experience eternity with him in heaven. That's what I think it looks like. Here's what else I think it looks like. I, I think it looks like somebody, instead of taking vacation for eight days this summer, saying, you know what? Instead of going to the beach, I'm going to get on a church van and drive for two days to Grand Junction, Colorado, and I'm going to go help Josh and Jill McCarty with this church plant that they've got going on out west in a culture that desperately needs gospel 